Archdiocese of Sioux Falls Office of Adult Faith Formation, this is the Prairie Rome Companion with Dr. Chris Bergwald. Hello, I'm Dr. Chris Bergwald, and welcome to the special edition of the Prairie Rome Companion podcast. And in this and the next three episodes of Prairie Rome Companion, we're going to hear a presentation that was given at a recent Faith for Life event in the Diocese of Sioux Falls. Uh, Faith for Life events are events which my office puts on. They're basically day Long, day-long seminars offered throughout the diocese, uh, opportunities for Catholics in the diocese, adult Catholics in particular, to learn more about some aspect of our Catholic faith. And in this first Faith for Life presentation, um, the presentation is given by Father Joseph Fox, who is a Dominican in the St. Joseph province of the United States. That's the eastern province of the Dominican order of uh, priests in the United States. And Father Fox uh, gave his presentation on why we do what we do at Mass. It was approximately a five, five to six hour presentation, and we've broken it up into four parts uh, for the purposes of this podcast. As always, if, as, as you're listening, if you have any questions about uh, the content of the podcast, uh, including this presentation, please feel free to contact me. My phone number is 605 605- Nine eight eight three seven six three, and you can also reach me by email at cbergwald at sfcatholic.org. That's c-b-u-r-g-w-a-l-d at sfcatholic.org. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy uh, this and the next ep- episodes of Prayer Rome Companion as we hear why we do what we do at Mass. May God bless you. I was in Rome for 22 years, you heard. I worked at the Vatican. I was, the, I was on the staff of the Pontifical Council for Legislative Texts, and, uh, which is kind of like those, uh, functions something like a Supreme Court. That is, um, <clears throat> it gives interpretations of law when people have doubts about what the law means in the church. And then I was... Uh, for a number of years, head of the personnel office, the HR point man at the Vatican, and took care of the personnel, everyone from the cardinals to the doormen. And that means that for five years, I used to pay the man who today is Benedict XVI. That's a big deal. (laughs) We used to be on committees together, and I would handle his personnel problems over at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and throughout the, the, the Holy See. So uh, I'm really happy that I can be here. I, as as uh, Chris mentioned, I taught at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas for uh, 22 years. I was also on the staff of the North American College, which is the seminary residence where seminarians, diocesan seminarians from the United States would live while attending the universities for their theological education and formation. And um, I had a number of your priests in class, so I I think they're priests by now. uh, over the years, and uh, so I had a very um, diverse experience in Rome, and now have been asked by Cardinal Maida in Detroit to be his theologian and canon lawyer. I handle all of his 
uh, priest abuse cases, for example, and I do teach at his seminary, and he's decided that, uh, well, Joe, you know, nobody has only one job in the church anymore, so uh, I get to be his canon lawyer and theologian, I get to teach at his seminary, and I work at the Pope John Paul II Cultural Center in Washington, D.C., so he's not satisfied to keep me in one place. In addition, I also um, do consultation with uh, bishops and dioceses uh, around the United States dealing with questions of the restructuring of, of uh, dioceses and the relationship with their parishes over property issues and so forth. I don't know if you've seen in the newspaper things like um, out uh, in uh, Spokane and Portland and Tucson, they um, declared bankruptcy. I don't know if you may have read that or not. And uh, one of the bankruptcy judges wanted to say that all the parishes, their property belonged to the diocese so that when they start doing a bankruptcy proceedings, they would be, well, maybe selling off a parish here or there. And the bishop protested and said, no, no, that's not in keeping with canon law. The parishes own them, they own themselves, you know, they are not part, they are not owned by the diocese. Well, it took a federal court to change that um, decision, uh, and uh, so now a number of dioceses around the country are looking into those relationships, and so I deal with some of those issues. I also do priest abuse cases in a number of other dioceses around the United States. Just to give you a, a, a background, you know, where I'm coming from. I have been teaching this uh, particular material that we're talking about today, the Mass, for uh, close to 30 years now. And it's something I really enjoy doing. I'm looking forward very much to... Um, getting into a discussion with you about this. I also want to make it a little more technical than you might be used to. Huh? It's not the, the things that we'll talk about today are not necessarily found in your devotional books. They're not necessarily found in uh, popular magazines and so forth. I would like to put some things into your hands today that would be more technical. Uh, nowadays, as opposed to maybe 100 years ago or so, most people know how to read. No? And so we're going to presume that you know how to do that. And that... Um, ha! Okay. It also makes it easier for me to discuss the matter because the more technical we get, the more insights we're going to come up with. I, I hope that I'll be able to convince you of that before the day is over. And there is one book that I didn't bring with me, which I was pretty sure that you would have, Chris, if I could ask it, in addition to these that you're, things you're passing out. Um, the sacramentary, the, the book the priest uses at the altar at Mass. <coughs> Do you want to ask any questions while he's passing that out right now? You're, you don't want to hear any more about me, I, I presume? Yeah. 
but okay. What Chris is passing out right now are two pages from the Code of Canon Law. Now I say this is a kind of strange thing, I suppose. Nobody in their right mind would start with the law of the church in talking about the Mass. Um, because I do canon law and everything, that I, I can't help myself. I'm sorry. Uh, and you'll notice that how much uh, I'm convinced how intelligent you are. It's in Latin and English. And that's not going to be a problem for you, I'm sure. When we talk about the Mass, we are talking about what is at the heart of our faith. As the Second Vatican Council says, the Eucharist, which the Mass is, the Eucharist is the source and the summit of all of Christian life. It is where we begin. It is the goal that we look for. Why? Because it is about Jesus. There is nothing else of importance in our life as long as we have Jesus. And I cannot underscore that enough. You know, it's interesting. We can call, I can tell you things about myself. You can tell each other things about yourselves and everything. It's all very important. Nothing, nothing, nothing is as important as this person, Jesus Christ. And we as Christians, as Catholics, we believe that he has given himself to us as a gift as food, as a spouse. And we're going to basically explore that today. I'm going to look at it. And I say, now, obviously, uh, as Chris was saying, you know, a, a four-month course that I do uh, in Rome or Detroit, I can't do in one day here, although you are that sharp and everything. <laughs> I can't do it. But we're taking this person, Jesus Christ, and we're seeing that he, as the second person of the Trinity, was sent by the Father, God the Father, into the world to redeem us. He gave him a mission. And that, re that mission is redemption. When we look at this mission, this redemption responsibility that is entrusted to Jesus, we can say that we can look at it scripturally, we can look at it devotionally and so forth. I want to do it today in a more legal manner. Because at the Second Vatican Council, the church used a language that was rather technical, has a long history and gives us 
deeper insights into what this redemption is about. I'd really rather, pre I, I must say, uh, when I taught this course, I usually began by going through all the mysteries of the faith from a perspective of the, of the person and personal relationships. We don't have time to do that, and Chris only asked me to do the Mass, so I said, okay. But when the bishops at the Second Vatican Council were talking about this redemption and how we are involved in it, they adopted a language and concepts that are very ancient but had not been used in the church for centuries. And it focused on the concept of munus. It's a Latin word, munus. And uh, munus, the way that it is understood from ancient times, Munus was a task, a function that was performed by a citizen I should put up here whoops. It got away. This is a public task or function, activity, performed by a citizen on behalf of the community, the state, whatever you want to call it, okay? the government, whatever. This concept of munus, when we look at this, it came from the root of the word is taken from Sanskrit. We can go back that far for the origin of this word. And the origin of the word centers on this mu. Now out here, you guys have heard a lot of that. <laughs> And it refers to a bond, a link, a tie, okay? Something that will hold things together. And the origin of this word, then, and the root of it, that this root, we can see used in our, even in English, it comes across, you know, say, in words like common or community or communion. Every time you hear that moo, we're back here about what ties us together, what binds us together. And this munus as a public task, a public activity, was seen as what bound people together as a group. They work together. They have functions assigned to them that bind them together, that make them a community. It's all based, that is saying, the identity of the person in these ancient times 
was seen in terms of the role they exercised in the community. Are you with me? These are public tasks, not because they were done outside of the home or out in the uh, marketplace. They were public in this sense. What you find on your on the two sheets that you just got, do you see Canon 834? Got it? Canon 834 in paragraph 2. You see? This worship takes place when it is carried out in the name of the church. Okay, this is this one here. On behalf of the community, in the name of the church by persons lawfully deputed through acts approved by the authority of the church. This is we're talking about public. I want to give an example. We have a system in the United States, our federal government, you know, you say we make laws by them being enacted by Congress, but they need a signature by the president, usually. No? You got it? When we take this definition, that legislative activity, that public task, is being done by a group of people on behalf of the people of the United States. Are you with me? They are the ones who are deputed by their having been elected, okay? That is saying, not just anybody can kind of step into their seats and do this work. Are you with me? And they have to do it in the way that is established by law for them to do it. They can't decide, oh, well, we don't like that approach. We're going to do it differently it would have no effect, legally speaking. You follow me? It goes through Congress, huh? And the bill comes to the president. Now, it's very difficult for a group of people like Congress. They're difficult anyway, let's face it. You need to say, to do anything privately as a group. I mean, that's out in the public in the general way that we use the word public. But that's not what made their act a public act in this sense here. What made it a public act was that they did it in the name of the people of the United States, that they were the ones who were elected to do it, and that they used the proper sequence in order to create this legislation. But then the bill goes to the president. Now we can do public things in what, and I want to talk about this, you say, that could appear to you to be private, okay? I, for some reason, my mind just went blank on, what is the president's wife's name? Barbara? Bar Laura. 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 Of course it's Laura. Laura. I say Barbara. You know, what year are we in anyway? <laughs> you guys are smart. <laughs> so, George gets the bill over at the White House, and, you know, is just 
weigh, you know, weighing this, you know, takes it upstairs to the bedroom, puts it on the nightstand, and it's just he and Laura there, you know? And decides, yeah, we really got to sign this. And he takes out, whips out his pen, and he signs on the dotted line. It was a public act. Do you follow? Had nothing to do about where he was or anything. Why was it a public act? Because he did it in the name of the American people, as the one who was designated, deputed to do this, and he used the act that was approved by law for him to do it. He signed it. Are you with me? This is very important when we are going to look at this, because when we look at redemption, this mission, and when we talk about this munus and the concept of munus, we see that it is a public task in that sense of being public. Are you with me? Someone has to be deputed to do this. It's by a citizen, and this citizenship comes either by birth or by law. By birth or by law. You need to say, when we are born in the United States, we're a citizen, aren't we? And we, ha we can do all the things that American citizens can do, right? Wrong. You have to grow up. The first part of being the citizen is simply, if you will, passive, huh? I benefit from being the citizen. There are all the advantages of citizenship, and now I'm going to grow up in that citizenship, and I am going to make that citizenship mine. Are you with me? I'm going to learn as I grow up what it means to be a good citizen. And then will come that magic moment in my life when, by law, I'm considered an adult and I have the right to vote. Well, maybe well, when you look at maybe being an adult and voting don't happen at the same time. Uh, or, for example, far more important as we're growing up was, who cared about voting? When can I drink? You know, in some states, 18, you're considered an adult. You're no longer a minor, right? And then you had to wait three more years before you could have a legal drink. Because we know we, for sure you didn't wait. But a legal drink, you follow? You say, right? Rights of citizens, you, and I can't have a drink legally until I'm 21. And in some places, in terms of the vote as well, the right to stand for public office, we're looking at eligibility, a second phase in that citizenship. But with the munus, when we look at these tasks and functions, some of them we can get to do almost immediately. For example, what would one of these public tasks be military service, uh, depending on the state. You know, I might be able to enter the military, but not be able to vote. 
are you with me? I want to show these differences between being the citizen. I want to look at the functions, the public tasks and functions. Military service is one. Another one that is very near and dear to all of our hearts, which are located usually at the pocketbook level, is paying taxes. Another public service, another public task that we perform. And all of us have been deputized from very early on to be able to do that. Do you follow what we're doing with this? Getting this sense of what these public tasks and functions are and how they are done? And it's by a citizen, either by birth or by law. By law, for example, someone is adopted. This is going on um, ancient law, uh, Roman law and so forth, that church law is based on. When we look at these different concepts, another one in this would be the manumission, where they say freeing a slave. When a, when a person was freed from slavery, they became a citizen. I just want to get some of these concepts now because we're going to apply them. I want to apply them to what we're doing about Jesus and redemption. This is on behalf of the community, and so these functions have to have the community sign on in some way. So one of the concepts that go together with Munus was the concept that they refer to as vocare ad vocari, V-O-C-A-R-I, vocari ad munus. And that vocari, and it, it, this is, that's Latin, um, to be called into service. That's the draft. Huh? It's the draft. A legal concept from Roman law that with regard to the munus, you couldn't decide on your own what functions, public tasks, you were going to perform for the community. Those depended on the community first calling you into service. Now, taxes is kind of like down there at the base of everything, and you get, you get notice about that rather frequently in ancient times as well. But when it came to other public services like military service or repairing the roads, ma maintaining the walls of the city, providing food for the city, things like this. Those functions, they require being called up, called into service. The generic calling required then also what they referred to as a missio. You know, when I'm drafted into the military, it would be nice that I could say, well, I'm going to be a general because there's no way I'm going to be a foot soldier, you know? But it doesn't work that way because it's the community, it's the lawful authority that has been set up that will call you up and then they will assign you, commission you to your place. They will give the mission your place in the big picture. Both are very personal, being called the vocation and the mission. It's interesting in our society in the last 30 years or so, we like to have organizations make their mission statement. It's a little amusing because mission 
by its nature, implies that somebody else is making that determination. You say, it's wonderful when we can do it ourselves, huh? I get to choose what I want to do. That's not a mission. I haven't been sent. And this word is all based on being sent. Being called, being sent. Okay, you have basic concepts, don't you? Any questions about these? Because now I'm going to crank it up. Any questions? The basic concepts. Good. When we look at this page that you just got, and we see this in terms of redemption, we can ask the question, what is the community... If we look at this this text here, 834, paragraph 1, the church fulfills its munus of sanctifying in a special way in the sacred liturgy, which is indeed the exercise of the priestly munus of Jesus Christ. Does it say that in your, your text there? I, thank you. Someone's honest. You, know, say, you see office. You see um, that being repeated. It's a munus in both cases. It is indeed the exercise of the priestly munus of Jesus Christ. So now the question has to be asked, what is the community on whose behalf Jesus is performing this public service? The public service here that we're looking at is sanctification. Are you with me? Are we making those connections? It says here that this the church fulfills its munus of sanctifying in a special way, which is indeed the exercise of the priestly office, this function of being a priest. The priestly function is one of sanctifying. Are you with me? Where does Jesus, what is the community on whose behalf he is going to exercise that sanctifying function? Now, this is meant to get you to, you know, kind of, my, my, my secret uh, mission here is to get you guys to think and talk. So, interesting, you see. We are the ones who called him into service? I don't think so. So, who is it? The Trinity, God. The Trinity is the community that he belongs to first, right? He belongs to that Trinitarian community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father calls him up. He gives him a mission, and the mission is redemption. And it includes certain other functions, Teaching, sanctifying, governing. And those were the three at the Second Vatican Council that the church kind of fastened onto in a new way. Had been there in ancient times, not very much discussed and developed. At the Second Vatican Council, they said, whoa, this is a good one. We see Jesus as priest, prophet, and king. Shepherd, if you prefer. Do you follow? 
priest, prophet, and king, that those are involved in what redemption is all about. when you were talking first about sanctification um, I thought but you talked about redemption first and now you've switched and you've talked about sanctification and now you've backed up again and you're saying that redemption has three parts teaching sanctification and governing Um, and that's a different picture of redemption from the one that you get when you hang around fundamentalist Protestants so I'm having trouble integrating my, the, my sub-community of fundamentalist friends and what you're saying, although I find this very exciting. So I guess that's not much of a question, but maybe you can An say something clever about it. You think? <laughs> Quite a challenge. <laughs> it is interesting to say, if you wanted to come here and hear what people are always talking about on these things... Um, I will disappoint you today. I really want to go beyond and give you some new concepts to work with, you know, in order that the um, reflection that should be going on in your life, in your relationship with God, might grow, might mature, that you might have more um, materials to work with in that relationship with God. Our sense of redemption very frequently can be so passive. This is something Jesus did, and I just buy into it. You know, I just fall in his loving arms, and that's all I have to do. Well, maybe I have to be good to my neighbor on occasion, but that is really not what it's all about. It's really just about falling in love with Jesus. There's more to it than that, as you know from your own life every day. Your life is considerably more complex, and the church is getting a sense of that in looking at, this, in, at this, these concepts. This redemption, this mission that Jesus is sent on by the Trinity, expressed by the Father as the origin, the authority, when we look at that and see that these other functions of teaching, sanctifying, and governing are a part of what that redemption is all about we can quickly identify and connect how it is that these three are related. And I want to do that a little bit. And then I want to get into the sanctifying part because that's why you came here was to talk about the Mass. No? So when I look at priest, prophet, and king... And I want you to feel comfortable with your fundamentalist friends because it was the reformers who were, after many centuries, the ones to bring up this concept of munus once again. It had, they had talked about it in the early church. Then they stopped talking about it. Then it was the reformers who brought it up again. And of course, being good Catholics, we weren't going there. And then it came up again at the Second Vatican Council. Do you follow? So, when we talk about the priest, we're looking at that sanctifying 
the prophet, the teaching. I'm sorry that my board is not big enough for all of this. And the governing is that function of the king, or if you prefer some, like the, the nicer word, pastor, shepherd, okay, governing. So I want to start I want to, with this concept, and I hope that before the day is over, you'll feel more comfortable with your re- uh, Reformed friends and all the rest. But when we are looking at this redemption and we're seeing that included are these three functions, you say, what does it mean to be redeemed? And we see it as a munus that is coming from the Trinitarian community, that Jesus is called up by the Father, is drafted by the Father, and sent on this mission, which is going to include the specific functions of teaching, sanctifying, and governing. Teaching, that is, what's the message, what's the concept that is being introduced into our sinful world. Are you with me? You say, how do we get across the message that we need Jesus? You will find plenty of people out there who say, redemption? Who needs that? We haven't done anything wrong. You know, Take a look at any baby when they're born. They're so innocent. They haven't done anything wrong. They're absolutely pure, untouched. And, you know, I've been good all my life, basically. I may have a little fun here and there, but, you know, uh, not a bad person. Who needs to be redeemed? Who needs to be saved? Saved from what? So the message that is being proclaimed in one is to, for some, for some, for many of us, we're pretty well convinced that uh, things are not going right. You know, we're going to hell in a handbasket, right? And it, you don't have to convince me of my need to somehow be saved because after all of my efforts, I find I still don't get it right. I still need help. I need someone to intervene. That message, however it comes, is a part of the teaching that prophetic message of Jesus. But more important in this is that Jesus has a way of salvation to, to um, explain, to introduce into the world. And that way is linked explicitly with him. As he says in the Gospel of John, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one is going to be saved. No one is going to share in eternal glory except through me. You're either tied in or you aren't getting it. Got it? But the way that you get tied into me, we begin to see that in the gospel message that he proclaims. There is a teaching about how we should be relating to ourselves, how we should be relating to each other, how we should be relating to God. Got it? What is he teaching? The gospel. The way that we can be saved. The way that we can enjoy eternal reward. The way that we can be happy forever. 
That is the message that he's bringing and he is teaching. And in the end, it can be summed up in his person. Stick with me. You'll be wearing diamonds, you know. Are you with me? That's the message. Putting that message into practice in a world that does not believe that message puts us in conflict. We have to make a decision. Now, for the most part, we don't have to go to the big world out there. We can start with the huge world right here. Me. Because I come into the world, and I'm absolutely enthralled with me. And everything should be governed by, well, me. And your life would be much happier if you simply would make mine happy. Uh, what did they tell me uh, over the years in the family? You know, say, if mama is happy, everybody's happy. Make mama happy. <laughs> and it's the right thing, right, ladies? You say, that world, and you say, we cannot be saved in that egotistical world. The message that the prophet Jesus brings to us, the teaching that he offers is, you aren't going to make it if you think you're the one who is doing all the ruling, who's in charge, who's in command. Therefore, we have to go through a process of saying, the king is dead. And I don't see where he went. Long live the king. We look for Jesus, then, to be the one who is the king. Are you, do you follow me? That is say that we are going to restructure, reshape, and form our life around him and his teaching. And that's going to be putting us into conflict with him. Because we like things our way. Are you with me? Do you follow what I'm saying? This kingship is about restructuring this world according to the model, according to the teaching, the way that Jesus proclaims in his gospel. Why? Why? It's all about being sanctified, being holy, Sharing in God's own life, because the life we have here is so tenuous, it's so passing, it's so chancy, the only thing that really makes any difference is the life that does not end, the life that is forever. All the rest is practice. No? Trying. Most of us are very trying. Doing our practice. Getting ready for the big one. For eternal life. And in Jesus, we have the model of what that eternal life is going to be. He lays it out there very clearly for us. 
This is what it's going to be like. Avoid the Christmas rush. Start now. Don't wait until you come to death's door and that you are now going to get it all together, you know, for the passage. Avoid the rush. Do it now. Are you with me? This sanctification is meant to transform the whole of our life, every aspect of our life, particularly the interior of our life. What would be some of the interior of our life? Okay, good. The soul. Emotions. Oh, we like them, you know. Our intellect. Our thinking. Our thinking. What else? Attitudes, behaviors. Behaviors, behaviors we, get to, we get to see something of that. Begin to, you know, to move uh, toward the outward. Our love, our hopes, our desires. That interior life, you cannot know except one way. How? No, 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 no. Oh, no, this is just ordinary human stuff. It was suggested we can only know it through Jesus. How, how can we know the interior life of another person? Pardon? Their actions, yeah. There's sometimes their actions betray their interior life. That's good. Yeah? You know, how, but how? Pardon? Intimacy. I love intimacy. You know, say, we're going to come back to that in one second. Just, just hang on to that one. I, just between the, all of us, you know, say that you can't know it unless they tell you, unless they reveal it. You can struggle, you can push, you can harangue. There's no way of knowing it unless they tell you. And that is intimacy, true intimacy. Sharing the interiority of my life with another person is true intimacy. And you can't get it unless they want it. Plain and simple. If somebody does not want to share that with you, you're not going to get it. You can do whatever you want. You'll get reactions, but you will not get that interior life. Are you with me? That is what intimacy really is, sharing that interior life. Now, when we look at this redemption and seeing what that sanctification is all about, we can say that redemption is divine intimacy. Because in Jesus, God shares the interiority of his life with us. the second person of the Trinity, the inside of the life of God, because up until that point, we didn't know there was one. Huh? We just didn't know. How would we have known that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? We're clueless, you know. We see in Jesus, the second person becoming man, that God, and mind you, the redemption is accomplished in him. By his becoming man. His conception brings God and man back together. What is that redemption about? 
It was the relationship that we had with God from the beginning was broken, was lost by our sins. We rejected the relationship with God and decided to go it alone. I don't need him. As a matter of fact, I don't need you guys either. I can do it on my own. And very quickly, and regrettably, we find that's pretty lonely. And I don't like it. Now, how do I get back in the relationship? I can't get back in the relationship with God because the sin, the breaking of the relationship, damages my ability to relate. Damages my ability to relate. So the redemption is going to be about restoring that relation in an unassailable way, in a way that can't be lost anymore. And that happens in one person only. This may be a shock to you. There's only one person who is redeemed. Who? Ha! Thoughtful. Who? Jesus. Only in him is the relationship between God and man restored in a way that cannot be lost. Only in him. If we don't understand that, we can't understand why it is that he is so important to our salvation. Because in the end, it says the only way that we are saved is by getting on the inside of Jesus, becoming a part of his life, buying into this Redeemer, this Savior. If we are not related to him, if we do not become a part of his life, there's no hope for us in restoring the relationship that was broken between ourselves and God. We have our chance, our big chance, by being related to him. And we can grow in that relationship with him. We can become more and more redeemed as we relate more and more to him. Ha! We're redeemed now if we buy into this relationship with Jesus. The problem is that when we look at these three functions, priest, prophet, and king, you say, if I try to take the message and make, you say, I'm taking Jesus and make him more a part of my life, the message governing more and more the way I behave, I will experience what that holiness is about. It should affect, first and foremost, the interiority of my life. Because that's where the union takes place first. Are you with me? He's saying, if I can begin to think the way Jesus thinks and evaluate life the way he does, if I can behave the way Jesus does, govern my life according to that message that he is, I will experience what that holiness is all about. Are you with me? Uh, this is oh, a lot of new stuff. Whoa, 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 whoa. Father, you understand what you're saying, but that 
evangelicals don't see that. Um, I think once they feel they're redeemed, they're redeemed. And there's no um, break in that relationship. But there is through mortal sin, right? As I said, <clears throat> the tendency that we have is to think that once we're saved, we're saved that's it. You know, we, we like that approach. It's great to belong to this family, you know, because you can't do anything wrong. Once you belong, you belong. What we know, in fact, is that we can violate the relationship. We can violate the trust. How we deal with that is another issue, and I don't want to get into that today. What I want to basically show that in terms of when we talk about redemption, those three functions, priest, prophet, and king, are interrelated. You cannot separate them out. They are part of what it means to be the Redeemer. And that message is meant to invade, be a part of every fiber of our, of our being, of our acting. Nothing is to be left out. That says for us, in a particular way, when you look at various religions in the world, you say, for us, it's very important that we study our faith. Why? Because we need to get into that interior life of Jesus and understand what it is that makes him tick and whether or not we can apply that to ourselves. Be ruled by that. There is an intellectual content. It's not only intellectual because... As you mentioned before, there are the emotions. huh? There are my hopes and desires. There's my dreams and so forth. You know, say all of that. How do we become shaped more and more like Jesus? Sharing his interior life. Would that be the same as contemplating his humanity? That's the beautiful thing about it, you know, say, because when he takes on our humanity, he is, in a sense, like opening the book for us to read. He is going to use his humanity as the way of restoring the relationship with God. Now, that says everything in your life all the really human stuff, and let's face it, most of us really are. All of that, Jesus is taking except sin as the way to communicate to us how we can be saved. This sanctification, when we look at the priest, we talked about the prophet. What's the message? What's the plan, if you will? The king. How do we govern our lives with that message? The sanctifying happens in this way. And I want to, this is, now we're getting close to our topic, almost, almost there. As the priest, he gives worship to God. That is, how should we, as created beings, relate to the creator? is worship. The most fundamental relationship that we creatures have to the Creator, 
the proper relationship, the appropriate relationship with the Creator is worship. And what is worship? That is rendering to God what He deserves. Which would be, what does God deserve from us? Love. And don't be shy. I mean, it's only us. Adoration. Sacrifice. Pardon? Everything. Is there anything that you've got that he doesn't deserve? Yes. Sin. Sin. That's the only thing he doesn't deserve. But all the rest, everything else about us, he deserves. Our time, our energy, our love, our devotion, our uh, thinking, our uh, maturing, our uh, efforts, you know, to make a better world or a better life. He deserves it all. There's none of it that he doesn't deserve. Our worship However, because of our sins and breaking off the relationship, which damaged our ability to relate to him, our worship is not perfect. Our worship is inadequate. There is nothing we can do that will make it adequate to what he has a right to. Do you follow me? Why? Because of our sin. And we can't take that out. There's no way we can inoculate ourselves against our own sinfulness that somehow we can overcome the disease of sin. We can't do it. It has um, damaged, in an irreparable way, our ability to worship adequately. Worship in a way that we could share in divine life. Do you follow? Jesus can worship in a way that sanctifies because he has never sinned because he has the antidote, so to speak, to sinfulness. Another reason why we need to be in relationship with him. Because we all have the obligation to worship, to give worship, to adore, to thank, to bless, to praise God. But it's never, it's never enough. It's never adequate. So by becoming a part of the worship that Jesus gives to the Father, we can be made holy. We can share in divine life. Our interest becomes then, how do we participate in the worship that Jesus gives to the Father? Because it is only his worship that can restore the relationship with God. It's the only worship that can truly make us holy. Are you with me? Do you follow? We, are, we must do our own personal relationship, but if we are going to be saved, we need to be part of the worship that Jesus gives to the Father. If we are not, we cannot become holy. Because it's only his worship that can do that.